today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. I want you to stop and think again how particular, how consistent John was with this declaration of this particular time frame, not of a season, he could have used that word, of an epic or for a time. He could have used a lot of words, but he said for a thousand years, six times in six verses, he says that. So if you want to spiritualize the thousand years, then you need to ask yourself why you feel that you need to make the Bible say something that it doesn't say or make it not say something that it says so plainly and so clearly. We hear so many dates and times in the Bible. We especially hear about time periods that will take place in Revelation. Pastor David is teaching today about how literal it actually is. When John says that something will take place for a thousand years, he means that something will take place for a thousand years. When people try to spiritualize, add to, or change what the Bible says, run. We are told to rightly divide the word of truth. That means we are responsible for what we know, so take heed. Well, let's join Pastor David in the book of Revelation chapter 20 with today's edition of The Open Word. give you some information here that you uh, might be able to use sometime if you play the game Trivial Pursuit. But it was in the late 900s when actually gunpowder started being used in China. As a matter of fact, it was around that time that they invented this thing called Fire Lance. It was bamboo, a tube of bamboo And later on, they would put metal inside of that. And then they would put this weak gunpowder in one end and then light that dude and then point it at the warring people. That was in the late 900s. It was a little while after that, just after around the 1000s. As a matter of fact, they say 1088, that movable type was invented. Now, that wasn't the beginning of the printing press. That didn't come until like... 500 years later, but at around 1,000, that's when they first invented movable type. And you know what? That was invented also in China. As a matter of fact, it was during around that same time that in China, they started using coal to, instead of burning down all their trees and everything, they actually started using coal during that time. So a lot of interesting things that were going on. The reason I give you all that That was a thousand years ago. How much has changed in a thousand years? Now churches have gun clubs and we go out and shoot. I mean, all kinds of weird stuff. I mean, we're shooting people, you know, into outer space and all kinds of weird stuff. The printing press is 
not quite, but almost gone out of business with the internet now. So quite a bit of change. And why am I saying all this? Why am I bringing all this attention to you? Is the fact that tonight we're going to be talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ. And when you start thinking about how long a thousand years is, that's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. The change in our world in that amount of time that we, of course, we haven't seen. Maybe Ed has seen some of that, but not all of it. And uh, I know Steve's seen some of those things. But a thousand years is a long, long time. Yeah, I've already gained two enemies tonight, so, okay. (laughs) This whole idea, though, of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ is actually a huge debate within the Christian community, because not everyone who is a believer believes that there is actually going to be a real and true physical 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on this physical earth. And by the way, I just want to let you know, you can be saved and have a different viewpoint on the 1,000-year reign of Christ. But I will tell you this, though it's a non-essential in the faith, your belief about that is probably going to skew your understanding of last days, what they call eschatology, the study of last days. It may even kind of mess you up if you don't believe that there's a literal, physical, thousand-year reign of Christ. You might have some other ideas and thoughts about the end times that, again, I think that it's just going to kind of mess you up as far as understanding what the church's role is, what your role is right now in these last days. So again, I'm going to be speaking tonight in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, and yes, I do believe that there is a physical, real, true, 1,000 year, 365 or 360 days, if it's a Jewish calendar, 1,000 year reign of Christ on this earth. Because of all these viewpoints, there's also several views on the meaning of Revelation chapter 20. And within those views, there's a tremendous amount of variations within even all of those views. Each of them on how this 1,000-year time frame relates to that second coming of Jesus Christ. Basically, there's three main viewpoints. We've touched on this as we've worked through Revelation. First of all is the post-millennial viewpoint. For those who are post-millennialists, their idea, their thought is, is the second coming of Christ comes after the end of a spiritualized thousand years. Not a physical thousand years, but a spiritualized thousand years. And for most post-millennialists, believe that during this time, the church is setting in motion the preparation for the Lord to come. In other words, the church starts getting, gaining rule and reigning, taking authority over this world. And for many people, that's kind of what they see. And they see pretty much all of Revelation as an illustration of spiritual battles. Now, I say that and understand there is a wide variety of understandings within that one viewpoint, post-millennial. But in essence, what they're saying is the second coming of Christ comes after the thousand year. And for most post-millennialists, they believe that that thousand year is a spiritualized thousand year. In other words, it's not an actual physical thousand years. And that kind of brings me to the second one, what they call ah-millennialists. 
amillennialists, they also take this spiritual interpretation of pretty much everything in the book of Revelation. There's no actual thousand-year reign. Satan was actually bound at the first advent of Christ, when Christ was victorious at the cross, that Satan was bound at his resurrection, and currently he's limited in what he's able to do. And again, the thousand years, it's only spiritually interpretive in in that sense. And as Christ is currently reigning, he reigns in the hearts and the lives of those that know him and love him. And so right now, Christ is reigning. So that's kind of the understanding of the amillennialists. Pretty much everything in Revelation has taken place or it's been spiritualized. The third point is what they call premillennial. And premillennial takes the viewpoint that pretty much everything in Revelation you can take literally. There are some things, there's just no way it's going to be able to fit in a literal sense. It's got to be in some kind of a spiritual format, spiritual interpretation. But for the most part, a premillennialist can also believe in a pre, mid, or post-tribulation rapture of the church. Now what that means is that the Lord's going to take the church out of here before the tribulation comes, before much of this pain and sorrow and the wrath of God that we've looked at here in Revelation is a pre-tribulation says, the Lord's going to take us out before any of it happens. A mid-tribulation says, well, no, we're going to see some of it, but about midway through it, the Lord will take the church out. There'll be the rapture then. And then the post-tribulation is, as it says, after the tribulation, then the church is going to be taken out. It's interesting here that one writer says that the early church, up until the time of Augustine, almost universally believed in an earthly, historical, 1,000-year physical reign of Jesus that was then initiated by his return. He would return to the earth, the second coming, then there would be a thousand-year reign. But then a fellow in the late 300s, Tychonius, he was the first one to have any kind of influence that pretty well championed the cause of a spiritual interpretation of that thousand years, saying that this millennium, this thousand years, is happening right now, and it has to be understood as a spiritual reign of Jesus, not a literal reign. And his viewpoint was then adopted by men such as Augustine, churches like the Roman Catholic Church, and most of Reformed theology took that idea. So just a thought and idea. Now, some people have a really hard time with this whole idea of a literal 1,000-year reign. But if you look back at the passage here in Revelation chapter 20, you'll see that John was pretty adamant about this thousand-year reign. Now, we're going to look at all the verses here in a moment, but look with me first here in verse 2. In verse 2, he says that this angel laid hold of a dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. Doesn't say for about a thousand years. Doesn't say for a long time. Doesn't say for a season, for an epic, for an era. Says for a thousand years. In verse 3, He says that the angel then cast him, cast Satan, into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the season was finished. That's not what it says. What does it say? Until the thousand years, okay? Verse 4, 
tells us that those who had been martyred were then resurrected, and they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years again. Then we go on to verse 5, even those that are resurrected. Verse 5 tells us that the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years was finished. And then according to verse 6, those who are seated on the thrones shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And then finally in verse 7, John reiterates this idea, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, if you want to spiritualize the thousand years, I want you to stop and think again how particular, how consistent John was with this declaration of this particular time frame, not of a season, he could have used that word, of an epic or for a time. He could have used a lot of words, but he said for a thousand years. Six times in six verses, he says that. So if you want to spiritualize the thousand years, then you need to ask yourself why you feel that you need to make the Bible say something that it doesn't say or make it not say something that it says so plainly and so clearly. Why is that? Is it because we have a hard time understanding this idea of how Christ is going to come? for all? That makes no sense to me. I don't care if it makes sense to you. If the Word of God says it, we've either got to believe it or we've just got to say, no, it's all spiritualized. Simply because we don't understand why God would bind Satan for a thousand years only to let him go at the end of that, or simply because we don't understand what it means to have the thrones and these martyred saints to be ruling then for a thousand years, and then it all changes again. It doesn't make it any less clear, doesn't take it any further from true, it doesn't take it out of the progression of things that we see here in the book of Revelation. I personally and Calvary Chapel, I believe universally, would be described as premillennial, pre-tribulation rapturous. We believe that there's absolutely nothing between now and the time of the rapture that biblically needs to take place. We believe that prophetically at any moment, at any time, and we which are alive remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's where we stand on this. You can believe a different view, but I think that you need to take a whole lot of Scripture, spiritualize it, I believe personally, twist it, turn it around to make it fit any other way. Now, you may be here tonight, and you may be offended by what I said. Don't be offended. Just if you believe another way, then find out why you believe that way. Is it because somebody taught you that that way, or because you just simply read the simplicity of the Word of God, and God is able to do something exceedingly abundantly above all that you can imagine or think? Look at it that way and see. So let's bring us up to speed here as we get into chapter 20. Back up to speed as far as all these situations, all these events that have taken place in the book of Revelation, all the events that we've seen thus far. And if we take this plain, straightforward interpretation of the Word of God, which again, I believe is always the best, unless it's deemed otherwise, then we find this following chain of events going on. Back up into chapter 19 and continuing on into 20, we see some events going on right now for us here in this place. Prophetically, the event that needs to take place 
before the rapture is not there. Everything that we can see, everything that we read, there's nothing that needs to take place. It appears to be logical with the events of the book of Revelation since the end of chapter 3 all the way until chapter 19. We don't see the church at all. So we see the church in chapters 2 and 3, and then in chapter 4, it said to John, John, come up here, and I was up in heaven in a moment. And we don't read anything about the church, again, until we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb that we read in chapter 19 last week when we looked at that. Following the rapture of the church, as the church escapes the wrath of God, and the Word of God says that we are not, as His children, we're not appointed to wrath. Discipline? Absolutely. Could we go through some tribulation? Absolutely. We'd be foolish to look at history and not realize that it can get a whole lot worse here before the great tribulation comes. But I believe, again, following the rapture of the church, that's when the wrath of God is going to really be poured out. The tribulation period then begins. Seven years of intense pain and suffering as Satan, his beast, and the false prophet seem to have complete control over the earth. And yet also during the same time, God begins pouring out his wrath upon the earth. We see that in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and in chapter 16. We can see those things just almost progressing along. And as I've said, not all of these are chronological in order. Some of them are happening right on top of each other, but we see this wrath of God coming. Then during this seven-year period, we have the first three and a half years in this relative peace, though there's a lot of things that are going on. There's a lot of change. Is peace enough that Israel is going to be able to build its temple again because Scripture's Old Testament and New speak about the sacrifices coming back into play. So we know that a temple needs to be rebuilt during that time. But at the end of that first three and a half years, the beast then sets himself and his image up to be worshipped. And if you're going to survive during this time, you have to take that mark of the beast, again, on your forehead or on your arm. That's found in chapter 13, where he speaks again, the mark being the number of a man, 666. Now, what exactly and how exactly that is, as we went over that several weeks ago, I told you, it's hard to determine exactly what that 666 actually interprets, and we looked at a lot of things. It's just difficult to understand. But one thing I know, you will not accidentally take that mark. You must give yourself to allegiance to the beast. You have to worship the beast. You have to be obedient to the beast. That's the only way that you're going to get it. You will not accidentally get it. They will not sneak it on your MasterCard. Okay? Just, Just thought I'd let you know that. Now, somewhere during this time frame, there have already been this 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from 12 tribes. As we look at this, these Jews now have been marked by God to be witnesses, to be evangelists to the world all around them. We find that back in chapter 7. And there also arises, during the same time frame, these two witnesses. And we spoke about possibilities. Personally, I just believe it's Moses and Elijah. If you believe it's somebody else, that's fine. I believe it's Moses and Elijah. They do these great wonders in the world, you know, before all the people. And then they're killed because their testimony for Christ and for the kingdom of God, they're killed and they're left on the ground, but their bodies don't rot. and They're amazed by that. And then God brings them back to life. And then they get, in essence, raptured. They get drawn up to heaven right before the eyes of everyone. That's found in chapter 11. 
And then at this point, it's that the whole world system, that mystery Babylon, finally at the end of the seven years, it goes into complete chaos, completely collapses. And we saw that in chapter 17 and chapter 18. And in the midst of that chaos, I believe that's where we find the second coming of Christ. I believe this is pretty clearly described in chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, that he comes during that time. The battles are are ready to go. They're ready to come against Israel. They're ready to destroy it, and this battle comes, and the next thing we see is that great battle between Christ and those that are with him against the kings of the earth against the beast and against the false prophet. The armies are destroyed, their flesh is given to the birds of the air, the beast and the false prophet then are cast into that lake of fire, they're done away with, they are no more the end of the story for them. Now we move into chapter 20. So the great battle has been done, the kings and all their soldiers have been destroyed, the beast and the false prophet thrown alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, Now we get to chapter 20. And however long that battle lasts, we don't know. But as we get into chapter 20, we find that an angel now comes and lays hold of Satan. Listen to what it says in chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. John writes, And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So there's no doubt about who the dragon is and Satan, the devil. They're all the same. That serpent of old. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into a bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nation no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I think it's absolutely amazing. Who is it that lays hold of Satan? An angel. It's not that Christ had to come and arm wrestle the devil. No, it's an angel of God, powerful enough to come and apprehend Satan, chain him up, cast him into that bottomless pit. An angel of the Lord, not even a named angel. Many times we have such great fear of Satan and what he can do. He has no more power than any other angel. Now, is he an angel of wickedness? Absolutely. Does he have power? Only the power that God gives him to have and allows him to have. And if one angel can come and apprehend him, then man, what could 10,000 angels on your side do against him? So again, when we look at this, we realize, you know, he is a lot of air, but he is just an angel. And you think, well, you can't say he's just an angel. He is just an angel. He is a fallen angel. He is a powerful angel, but he is just an angel. It's not the yin-yang, the power of darkness and the power of light, you know, God against Satan. No, God is the one, and he is an angel. He is creation of God, and one other angel comes, apprehends him, chains him with a chain, puts him in the bottomless pit, shuts him up, and sets a seal on him for 1,000 years. But the weirdest thing to me in all of that is that last sentence. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. That's one of the questions I want to ask when I get there. I mean, I've got my own ideas of why, but it just seems, wow, couldn't it all be just done right then? Couldn't Couldn't it just be finalized then? But God's plans are not my plans. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. Amen. 
Thanks for spending your time with us today on The Open Word. If you were encouraged by this time together learning more about Jesus and want to hear more, we'd invite you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes where you can get notified of the latest message as soon as it's available or find archive messages you may have missed. You can even find these teachings online at theopenword.com. There you can learn all about The Open Word and the ministry we're blessed to be a part of. In fact, Pastor David has a special message for you about how you too can be involved in sharing the good news through The Open Word. There really is something deeply refreshing about being a part of God's kingdom. Not only do I get to learn more about Him every time I open the Bible, but He's given me the great privilege of sharing His love with you. This radio ministry and others like it, they're a wonderful and powerful way that God is reaching people across the nation and well, across the world with the gospel. We're blessed to be a part of it. But as with any ministry, there are expenses. Would you prayerfully consider being a part of our financial support here at The Open Word? If you feel led to give, visit theopenword.com and click on the support option. That'll bring you to our secure giving page. Your gift will help us to continue to grow and spread the word of God. Thank you for bringing this matter before the Lord. Thanks, Pastor David. As our time with you draws to a close, know that we continue to pray for you and for more and more people to come to know Jesus through this ministry. Join us next time to continue studying Revelation right here on The Open Word.